Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. We're in chapter 34 and on page 345, the section heading is nearly crowded off the programme. Um, I appreciate your patience with me. Sometimes I trip over my words, but let's enjoy the words of Joseph Smith III together. Enjoy. A meeting of the board of directors of Graceland College required my attendance in Lamoni on August 11th, but I returned to Maysville soon to speak under the auspices of the Women's Christian Temperance Union before the same Choto Q assembly Sam Jones had addressed. How the invitation to do so came about, I do not know. But it happened that the programme was so managed that only a very few minutes were allowed for the temperance speech I was expected to deliver. Those minutes were sandwiched in between speakers who orated on populist and free silver topics. As I was introduced, I was frankly told by the Secretary of the Union that they were sorry so short a time is possible for you. I took it good-naturedly and perceiving I had the old-time grim, grim-visaged intellectual audience to face, I followed the line of discussion I had so often found effective, stressing the need for much educational work to be done as a preparation for that much-to-be-desired time when intoxicants will have no appeal as a beverage. The audience was small and quiet, and at first rather casually attentive, but after a few minutes I found I had captured the interest and attention, not only of those close to the stand, but of the crowd that had rapidly enlarged by numbers collecting about its edges. After I finished, I received from the secretary a very lame apology for their having given me so uh, me such scant time, in which it was twice urged as an excuse that they had not known my quality as a speaker, and it had been a question with them whether or not it would be profitable to have Joseph Smith of the Mormon Church lecture for them. A number of hearty congratulations were extended to me, and I was invited and urged to repeat my lecture, but declined the honour. With one of the other orators, Brother Frank Chapman, I was a guest at the home of Brother Jacob Taylor, there I enjoyed the lively discussion with Chapman on the subject of the silver craze, which furnished me much amusement and him considerable dismay over the disarrangement I brought to his proofs. Brother Taylor listened to our animated arguments, much entertained to see two men with views so far apart, finding so much enjoyment in presenting and airing their ideas. On my way home, I stopped at St. Joseph and preached in the Saint's Chapel. It was the 21st when I reached Lamoni. Next heading. What about deathbed repentance? Referring again to the man in our neighbouring town who had said he was afraid to join our church, I may say that I have indulged in considerable speculation about him. I had frequently come in contact with individuals who lo whose lives showed a deliberate disregard of the moral responsibility which should motivate members of society. Their conduct evidenced a lack of proper intellectual balance which amounted almost to an obliquity of the moral perceptions. In such cases, it might be questioned whether or not their conduct were the result of willful sin or of an ignorance for which they could hardly be held responsible. I recall a young man who, though of otherwise irreproachable conduct, was a helpless devotee of the drink habit. This weakness caused him to gradually neglect the responsibilities of his home and his duty to his wife and children, and to be satisfied with the scant living afforded by a governmental annuity received for services as a railroad employee rendered during the war. He became a periodical drunkard, utterly oblivious to the usual restraints of citizenship, general association or church relations, 
The questions have often arisen in my mind. How far will God hold this man responsible? When and how did his responsibility begin and end, if any ever existed? Similar questions had occurred to me during my stepfather's later life and last illness. I had knowledge of several episodes in his life that showed him to be hopelessly immoral in some directions, and I have wondered how far we, he would be held responsible for his conduct. Was his weakness due to some mental defect for which he was not to blame? Did he become thus indifferent to righteousness of conduct through a gradual course of development in that direction, gradually immuning himself from all ministrations of a better spirit? Was it a stirring or awakening recognition of such moral responsibility that caused him to say, with tears in his eyes, when I suggested his yielding obedience to the gospel of repentance, Joseph, it is too late? Did there flit through the mind of the dying man, then incapable of committing any more sin, other than those mental ones which may amount to sin him, thoughts of his long life unmarked by regard for the moral restraints and inhibitions? Did such thoughts and memories cause the hopelessness expressed in his reply? Did he fear that the yielding to the formal act of confession of sin and plea for forgiveness, such as baptism implies, would be regarded by the great judge as blasphemous and therefore unavailing? So I also wondered at the statement of this man who, in listening to an um, evangelist, Jones, had been made conscious of his own sins yet had expressed a fear to unite himself in church relationship to me and my comrades, a body of people trying to keep in view that golden mean of Christian responsibility which lies between extreme fanaticism and emotionally, emotionalism on the one hand and cold, unfeeling reason on the other. I asked myself, did he fear and had he reason to fear that such a step of obedience on his part, expressing repentance, confessing sin, asking forgiveness, would be regarded in the great judgment day as a worthless act because of the enormity of his prior misdoings and the steady disregard of moral regulations and of man's duty to God and to his fellow men, which had marked his former years. Was there born in upon his consciousness at that hour the finality and inexorable nature of the fiat of the Almighty, the soul that sinneth shall die. Did he feel that he had already forfeited his right to a better life, and that he must be resigned to take the awful consequences of an unforgiven and unregenerated entity as a result of the evil already wrought in his life? Is it possible that the mercy and loving kindness of the Heavenly Father, who is also the great and infallible judge of all things human, are in reality limited in their scope, and that a life of sin, steadily persisted in, finally removes a man beyond the field of their operation, and thereby prevents the exercise of leniency? And in the moment of great soul stress, does a man who has lived as this one and many others have lived, have a full and overwhelming consciousness of this decree and of his hopeless ostracism from saving grace, such a consciousness as would cause him to say, Joseph, it is too late, or Mr. Smith, I am afraid. Pondering and speculating over these questions, as I often have in an effort to reconcile such thoughts with the others, which insists that salvation is for the sinner at whatever point he chooses to avail himself of its privileges and obey its conditions. I have not been able, in my human weakness, to solve it to my entire satisfaction. However, this I may confess. I am absolutely sure that, though I believe in probation after death, I dare not preach from the pulpit or advocate in private conversation the thought or theory that men to whom has come 
in this life an opportunity to see the light of God revealed in the person, life and teaching of his son Jesus Christ, and who, in spite of that opportunity, have persisted in living an utterly careless life, indifferent to and scornful of that light spread abroad upon the earth for their guidance, shall be given beyond the grave a further opportunity to yield that obedience to the command, ye must be born again, which they were unwilling to give on this side of the portal. I have not been able to promise that to such sinners by omission shall be granted that splendid fulfilment of development and progress toward God, which those who hear and obey and strive while in this earth life have been privileged to make. Reflecting thus, I find consolation in the thought that the final destination or the final destiny of all individuals rests in the just and wise hands of him who has not erred in the creation of the world, nor in the establishment of the moral laws to rule therein. He has as yet made no mistake, nor will he. And in his counsel, he has assured me that it is my duty to forgive all men, even while to him who knoweth all things is reserved the right to forgive whom he will. Next heading, Reunions and Dedications. The saints of the Nauvoo and String Prairie District organised a reunion to be held at Bluff Park, a point in Iowa on the bluffs below the little town of Montrose, directly opposite the foot of Main Street in Nauvoo. I decided to attend this meeting, which began, which began about August 21st. During its sessions, I performed those ministerial duties incident to my position and priesthood and in addition made several visits across the river to Nauvoo. One of these trips was made in company with some brethren from a distance, Bartlett, Shoemaker and others who wished to view some of the old places of historic interest. Upon this mission I gladly served as guide and chaperone. This reunion at Bluff Park was thoroughly enjoyable in spite of the fact fact that the weather was extremely hot sinuated very high and with the proximity of lake cooper established by the building of the great dam at kukuk it is an ideal outing place and one which should be a favorite with the saints not only for its own advantages but for its nearness to Nauvoo, that place so rich in historical interest for all of us Reaching home on the last day of August, I remained but a few days and then started for Centre Junction in northeastern Iowa, being called there to help dedicate a little church built by the members of the Oak Grove Branch. Brethren J. W. Peterson, Ellie Hills and some others labouring in the neighbourhood had interested a number of people in our work, among them two families by the name of Green. These families occupied fine farms situated on opposite sides of a small valley, their houses being up on the hillsides. It was early morning when I reached the locality, having been conveyed thither from the centre junction by brother W.B. Thomas. I found the branch was not a large one, but the members were well scattered out over the country and the numbers were increasing encouragingly. Saturday was arranged for a picnic day, a programme being provided by the members of the Sunday School. The different participants quite distinguished themselves under the capable direction of Brother Hills, Sister Blanche Shrunk and several sisters of the Green families. The dedication proper was on Sunday, September the 5th, after which ceremonies and organisation of the branch was effected. In doing this, it was necessary to christen the new chapel, taking my cue from its location between the hills where the two green families lived. I suggested the name of Green Valley Church, which met with favour. If the chapel is standing today, it doubtless still bears that name. Our honourable brother W. B. Thomas and his wife are long since dead. One nephew, Orlin B. Thomas, is preaching in our missionary force, though his brother David W sleeps with the great host, 
Brethren Hills, Peterson, Heidi and Hand are still labouring with more or less success as ministers for Christ. Independence has received a number of former members of the Green Valley branch, saints who decided to leave that Sylvan retreat between the Aoan Hills for the bustle and activity of our Zionic Centre. The Western Iowa reunion of 1897 was held at Woodbine, where under the capable engineering of Brother S.B. Kibler and his associates, an excellent retreat was found near the town, and a number of thousands of people were entertained during the progress of the sessions. The usual aggregation of officials was appointed for the conduct of the meeting, the guardianship of the peace and the comfort of the attendants. A number of days were spent in gospel ordinances, preaching, offering prayer, testimony, baptism, administering to the sick and all the usual exercises accompanying such gatherings of our church people. I made my home at the residence of Brother Kibler, but had a tent upon the grounds where I could rest. In the interims, I travelled about from tent to tent, eating with first this old acquaintance and then with that, for all were most kind and solicitous. There were the Hawleys, Holcombs, Blacks, Derrys, Pets, Pitts and a host of others, too many to be enumerated. I found the days all too few for me to comply with all the invitations extended to me. Next heading, dedicating a gospel tent. One trip was made to Dow City where I spoke in the church there and another to Omaha to dedicate the new district tent recently acquired. Some sons of an old time friend named Wolf were engaged in manufacturing tents in that city. My nephew, Frederick A. Smith, in charge of both the Omaha branch and the district in which it is located, had been active in securing a commodious tent for district use, and under his supervision it was at this time formally dedicated to its missionary purposes. One family in western Iowa, with whom I had formed pleasant acquaintance, was that of Henry Halliday an Englishman located at a railway station a few miles south of Woodbine. The entire family was active in church work, including the married daughters, Mrs. Joseph Seddon and Kate, a tall, willowy woman who was the wife of Burton N. Wooler. The latter was a successful life insurance agent. All of these good people I had known for some years. In visiting Council Bluffs, after the Woodbine reunion, I was invited to supper at the Waller home. Brother Halliday had passed on before this time, but his widow was there with her daughter, and we all had a good visit. I may state in passing that Kate Waller and her husband came to Independence a few months ago to attend the funeral of Walter Bullard, with whom they had some family connection. Mr Waller is a pleasant, intelligent gentleman, but has not yet yielded obedience to the gospel requirements. When they called on me during their visit here, we had quite a chat. I asked him how it happened that he, who was so busy ensuring the lives of people against temporal want, could be so indifferent on his own art to the higher form of life insurance as not to take the steps supposed to be essential and initiatory to assure life hereafter. He admitted the aptness of my observation, but did not explain or defend his position otherwise than with a slight shrug of the shoulder, that quizzical expression of doubt or indecision, which is a characteristic of a good many men. Next heading, a Canadian itinerary. Arriving home late in September from my visit to Western Iowa, my stay there was very brief. I had been invited to attend a conference of saints to be held in Toronto, Ontario, scheduled for the second day of October. It was Saturday morning when I arrived in that city. Through some misunderstanding or miscarriage of correspondence, there was no one I knew at the station. I took the stranger's privilege, secured a cab and was taken to the home of the only church member whose address I had, 
that of Sister Divine, mother of brother Joseph Luff. The name of the street was Bread's Albine. And as I spoke it to the driver, Bread Albine, he scratched his head and said he knew of no such street in the city. I handed him the bit of paper. He read it and with a rather contemptuous clucking sound said, Oh, you mean Breablin, slurring over some of the consonants and accenting the second syllable. I suppose so, sir. I'm not familiar with Canadian pronunciations. Next heading, welcomed by R.C. Evans. I found Sister Divine at home and receiving from her the needed information, at once repaired to St. Andrew's Hall, where the conference was being held. My arrival created considerable stir, for I was immediately recognised by someone at the door and Richard C. Evans came tumbling down the steps and aisle to give me warm greeting and hearty welcome, and I found it pleasant to yield myself to the satisfactions I always feel in being among a representative body of the family of God. However, in many respects, this experience was quite new to me. There were a few present whom I had ever seen before. A small number had been delegates to the general conferences, but the majority were strangers. However, they were destined to soon merge into that association of recognised brotherhood, which we have so long enjoyed. The speaker that night was Daniel MacGregor, a rising young, young Scotsman of much promise. Brother Thomas R. Seaton became my host. His family consisted of his mother, his wife Effie and two children, Charles and Gurley, as she was called. Brother Seaton was the janitor for the Bank of the Dominion building, one of the largest and most imposing edifices in the city. His living quarters were in the top storey, reached either by stairs or by means of the lift, which we call elevators. It seemed strange to me to be domiciled at that elevation above the city where the noises only reached us in a subdued and moderated confusion of sounds. The rooms were well ventilated and the surroundings in every way apparently healthful. The company of Brother Seaton's was very agreeable. There were two young ladies staying there, one being Mabel, a daughter of Brother Alexander Clark, and the other Mary Jackson, who worked in a large clothing establishment in the city. Brother Seaton was a Scotchman and quite a good singer. His mother was an excellent musician who played the organ and piano and sang very well indeed. Many hours of musical delight were enjoyed with these good people during my stay, an opportunity afforded and cares of church business did not interfere. Grandma Seaton would sit down to a piano. Sorry, let me say that again. Grandma Seaton would sit down to the piano and play and sing the old-fashioned songs and ballads with which she was familiar, and we would all join we would all join in, passing thus happily those evenings when meetings were not held. These occasions stand out in memory very agreeably. Sunday services began early and I was glad to meet the many saints gathered from many points for the conference. An early morning prayer service followed a fast and then came sacrament. Brother Evans was the speaker at the 11 o'clock hour and it fell to my lot to address the saints at the afternoon and evening services. The hall was not very large, yet proved sufficient for our purposes, and the attendance and interest was quite satisfactory. While on this trip, in company with or under arrangements made by Brother Evans, I visited and preached in several places adjacent to Toronto, among them St Mary's, London, Chatham, Wallisburg, Blenheim, St Thomas, Vanessa and Waterford, the latter was a place among the hills which was said to be the scene of some activities of the elders in the early church and where my father, Uncle Hiram, Heber C. Kimball, John T. and Freeman Nickerson and others had been missionaries. There I had the pleasure of calling upon a brilliant 
of this old time following. His name was Smith. He took special pains to help us obtain a hearing there. As usual, when notification was given out that a Latter-day Saint would speak, some ridiculous old stories were revived. One was that when Joseph Smith preached, he was accustomed to be visited by a dove which would fly down to greet him as some sort of testimony of his power. The story ran that when he became all wrapped up in his address there at Waterford and in the miraculous dove was momentarily expected, a sure enough bird did appear, but it turned out to be nothing but an old white gander, well known in that neighbourhood, which some enterprising people opposed to the Latter-day Saints had hired mischievous boys to secure and let loose at a given signal. We heard some threats of opposition at the time of my visit, but our services were carried forward without interruption. We were gratified to have present uh, an old-time and respected citizen of the city, Brother R.C. Longhurst. I was quite satisfied too to hear Elder Evans quietly state to the audience that if there were anyone who desired to make war upon our faith and would appear with proper credentials as a representative of a regularly organised body of religionists, he would be given ample opportunity to do so and be readily supplied with an able opponent in such forensic battle. From Waterford we went to Niagara Falls, where on the the Canada side an appointment for services had been made, the hall procured by Brother William Place and others. Though the audience here was not very large, it was quietly attentive, and we held several meetings. At one of these I had the pleasure of hearing Brother Evans' exposition of the question, was the thief on the cross a baptised believer? I listened very attentively. Brother Evans presented three very ingenious theories concerning the proposition that the thief had indeed been a disciple of the Christ, but he did not reveal which of the three he personally believed or accepted. I challenged him afterwards on this inconsistency, at the same time outlining what to my mind would be a logical conclusion in the matter. Brother Evans received my criticism and suggestion in good nature, expressing gratitude therefore. And I noticed in subsequent efforts, when I was privileged to hear him on the same topic, he was inclined to include the line of reasoning I had presented to him. While at Niagara Falls, a man attended our services who had been a member of a celebrated cooperative society in New York called, I think, the Onida. My memory of his name seems to point to Fletcher, though it may have been Savage. He invited us to his home for lunch, where we spent some three or four hours in discussing the propriety and value of these efforts at communion. Sorry, let me say that again. In discussing the propriety and value of these efforts at communism. He stated that he had stayed with the project as long as he dared and still retain his self-respect and any portion of his means. He declared that his experience had taught him that the persons who had initiated the experiment were men who were not under the necessity of labouring for a living and they had formed upon cooperative theories a utopian community which continued as long as the energy, enthusiasm and money for its founders remained and means were forthcoming to give it impetus or to meet the deficits which seemed inevitable. He said the community had seemed to flourish for a time, but after reaching a certain point of development, no new ability, enthusiasm or impetus had been given to the institution. The original supply of means for expenses and outlay became exhausted and the whole society dropped into decay. He gave me a book on the subject, the history of this and other important movements of a similar nature and said very impressively, Mr. Smith, your father was right.
There can be no successful cooperative communism where the religious element is lacking in the personnel of the organisation. The bonds of cohesion must exist in religious principles equally binding upon all. He seemed well acquainted with the views and history of our church and had copies of the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants. We greatly enjoyed our visit with this gentleman and departed feeling well pleased that we had given him that we had been given the opportunity to meet and converse with him. At Niagara Falls I met two sisters named Phipps, one of whom was very intelligent and strongly religious, while the other was inclined to adopt the showier ways of the world. At this place, the families of Brethren Place, Hillier, Hagerman, Luz, Aldridge and others vied with each other in entertaining us and we were well cared for. We took time to visit the old fighting ground of Lundy's Lane where American defeat long ago left the British in possession of the Canadas. As we walked down the celebrated lane, I thought of the young Lieutenant Winfield Scott, who is said to have been followed in his retreating flight by a mounted officer and very nearly captured. Watching the shadow of the pursuing horse and rider and judging accurately the exact distance and time, the young man swinging himself backward with a St. George's strokery sword caught his enemy off guard, felled him from his horse and thus escaped. This story, more or less mythical, who shall say, came to memory, cold as flotsam from the high tide of my youthful reading. We visited the graveyard where lies an American officer, Captain Allen, I think, whose grave, made just after that battle, has escaped destruction and has been respected and treated with the same care as the resting places of the Canadians. We saw the spot where it is said the bodies of some 53 Americans were piled in a heap, covered with brushwood and cremated, as a matter of precaution against contagion. We visited the falls, noted the tremendous sweep of the water, and stood entranced before the wonderful display of mighty power released by that magnificent phenomenon of nature. I have seen the falls from both sides, have sat on the platform overlooking them on the New York side when the water was low, visited the little islands that keep watch above them and tried to calculate the chances for life of those who tried to shoot that hazardous watery precipice. I may say here, that though I have seen many, let me start that again, I may say here that though I have seen them from many angles and under many conditions, I've never exhausted my interest in Niagara Falls or failed to thrill at the entrancing sight it presents. Next heading, engagement. It was October the 26th when I returned to Toronto. I passed lightly over the days that intervened between them and November 19th, days in which I was paying court to Miss Ada Rachel, third daughter of Brother Alexander Clark of Walsamer, Ontario. It is already of record herein that I won her affection and was accepted by her, subject to the consent of her father. The acceptance of my suit brought me much happiness I had expected some opposition on the part of her parents on account of the difference in our ages. At her request, I had left to her the matter of defending my appeal made in a letter to her, to her father and thus felt contented when consent was obtained and I was able to place a modest ring upon her finger in token of our pledge. Next heading to Eastern Points. Having an invitation to visit Richmond, Virginia, to baptise one Dr. P.P. Stark, a dentist, I left Toronto for that place after promising to return in time for the Christmas holidays. I had often wished to visit Richmond, the picturesque capital of the Confederacy, 
but never having felt at liberty to spend the monies of the church for the gratification of purely personal desires. A visit to this noted city had never materialised before them. On December 2nd, after a long and satisfying interview with Brother Stark, I baptised him in the waters of the historic James River. The morning was beautiful and the weather as pleasant as it would be in June in the western clime where I have lived. According to the direction of the Spirit to me, I confirmed and ordained him to the eldership the same day. It was my delight to be entertained in one of the most ancient residences of Richmond and to see the historic state house noted as the centre point of that unfortunate secession movement which was submerged in the deadly struggle between the contenders for states' rights and federal authority. The result seemed indeed inevitable and as a fulfilment of the old tradition apparently supported by facts of history, viz. that whenever the sturdy stoical energy of the North was, is pitted against the fiery fury of the South, the former will triumph and the latter go down to defeat. Next heading, Corrections. We are much pleased with the interest that is being taken by the Herald readers, generally in the memoirs of the late President Joseph Smith, Occasionally a letter comes our way expressing pleasure and appreciation for which we are humbly grateful. Again occasionally comes one bearing some correction of name, date or other incident. These two are appreci appreciated by us and we gladly send them to our readers for consideration. We have not claimed that Brother Joseph's memory was infallible and we feel sure he would be the first to wish to correct any error he might have made. In this spirit, then, the following paragraphs are submitted. Brother S.W.L. Scott of Coldwater, Michigan, writes that the Mr. Miller, with whom his brother Elder Columbus Scott debated in an early day, was a resident of Battle Creek, Michigan, and a me member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The subjects debated were concerning the Seventh-day Sabbath and whether or not the spirit of man is conscious between death and the resurrection. See Herald for November 12, 1935, page 1457. Sister E. Leola, niece of San Bernardino, California, writes that the name of which appears as Han as Henderson should read Hendrickson, that the reference is to her parents who live next door to Aunt Vida, and that Brother Joseph had a number of visits and meals with them. Sister Niece possesses and cherishes a little yellowed and crumbling autograph book that was her mother's. In it, above his name, Brother Joseph had written... To become great is the lot of few, but to become good is open to all. The entry is dated March the 23rd, 1888. Sister Nice states that her mother was a descendant of General Israel Putnam of revolutionary fame and other early New England families. She regrets that her parents have not lived to read and enjoy the memoirs, for they had loved Brother Joseph very deeply. See Herald for July 7th, 1936, page 849. Brother John Robinson of Independence, Missouri, writes that the ceremony which united his brother Wallace and sister Nettie Bartholomew took place in the basement of the Stone Church, one of the first to be performed there. The reception which followed was held in the new home Brother Wallace had built for his bride, at 109 Pendleton Avenue, the Bartholomew House at the corner of Lexington and River Boulevard, the hospitality of which was so often extended to Brother Joseph, was not then erected, according to Brother John. See Herald for August twenty second, 1936, page 1041. The last correction we present came in an unsigned letter, Mailed at Hillsborough, Iowa, September the 8th, 1936. It states that Lucy Salisbury Duke, 
left a large number of descendants, having had four sons and two daughters, instead of the only son Jack referred to in the memoirs. Many of these live in and about Burlington and are good, faithful, devoted Latter-day Saints. Lucy Salisbury, Duke, left in memory as one as of one who went about doing good, always ready at the call of need to go out and minister to others. We are sorry the writer of this letter did not sign his or her name, as we should have liked to write and explain that such errors occurring in the memoirs should be charged to Brother Joseph's memory entirely, and that the compiler of his manuscripts is in no way responsible for them. See Herald for November 26, 1935, page 1522, signed Audentia Anderson. Back to uh, the words of Joseph Smith III. In passing through Washington, I was met at the station by a sister, Jolly, with whom I had been acquainted at Pittsburgh. She took me to the hospital the hospitable home of her sister, Mrs. Bloom, and under the guidance of these cultured ladies, both widows, I visited the Corcoran Art Gallery, Congregational Library, Smithsonian Institution, and other interesting places in the city, including historic Old Georgetown. Part of the time I was there, it was raining, so we went about by carriage, Sister Jolly's daughter was quite ill and the mother had considerable fears that she might be going into a decline. At her request I administered to the girl, engaging in earnest prayer for her relief, and I am glad to state that this part of my mission to the great capital city was sealed by the reward of a return to health, partial though not complete, for the girl was never extremely robust. Sister Jolly later moved to Independence, built a comfortable home on Lexington Avenue, which she afterwards sold, removed once more, and is now living again in the East, I understand. Going to Pittsburgh, I made it a point from which I visited several places. At Fayette City, I preached to an assembly composed largely of those who had followed the fortunes of Sidney Rigdon and his successor, William Bickerton. Quite a settlement of these factionists had been built up by Pennsylvania, under the leading of William Cadman, whom I met at Pittsburgh when he attended one of my meetings. My diary shows that in the earlier middle part of this month, I also visited at Naomi, Wheeling, Benwood, Martins Ferry, Bel Air, Irondale, Allenkenny, and Greenfield, all in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio. I preached in nearly all these places in spite of much suffering from neuralgia brought on or aggravated by untoward cold and dampness in the weather encountered. In cooperation with Brother Dexter L. Shin, services in Martins Ferry were held. By appointment, I there met and conferred with Elder James Brown, who had become dissatisfied under Blair's administration in the East and had refused to work with Brother Shin and other local men. It had been predicted that I would not bother to give him an audience, but, as I had always done when facing disagreeable possibilities in Utah and elsewhere, I did meet him, and we discussed his disaffections. Though my intercession and explanations, I am happy to say, sorry, let me start that again, through my intercession and explanations, I am happy to say he was restored to confidence and cheerful labour. He returned to the fold in full faith and became engaged with us in church work, which has not, to my knowledge, wavered since. At Irondale, our services were held in the Methodist Church, permission for its use having been obtained from its pastor, Reverend William Pavel, through the effort of Brother Adolphus Edwards, a foreman in the Timplate Mill. In company with Sister Edwards and Sister Brewster, I visited this mill and witnessed the processes of rolling iron plate and coating it with tin. Brother Edwards took a hair from the head of his sister Anna 
and laid it between two of these plates as they went under the rollers. To my astonishment, when taken out, there was the impression of that hair on both the thin plates of iron, showing the marvellous power of resistance to pressure which it possessed. Back in Pittsburgh, I was the guest for some days of brother and sister Ralph G. Smith, now of independence, many others of the good saints of that branch and locality vying with each other in treating me with kindness. I may here mention an experience Brother Shin and I had with natural gas as fuel. We went home with a brother, Omar Hundra, for dinner. He was living in a comfortable new house. We were shown into the parlour where natural gas was burning in an open grate for purposes of heating the room. In a little while I began to feel sick and faint. At first I attributed this to hunger, for it was well past the meal hour. Soon Brother Shin was also oppressed, and suddenly we comprehended our danger and started for the door and the fresh air outside. It seems there was no draught or flue properly arranged to carry out the gas fumes, the unused portion of which rapidly vitiated the atmosphere. Because of cold weather, the windows were not open and conditions had rapidly become such that we would surely have asphyxiated had we not comprehended the situation in time. When visiting another family there who used natural gas for heating and cooking, I took pains to observe the construction of their fireplace and stove. In the stove, there was placed about a half bucket of bricks into the midst of which the gas pipe was conducted with a burner attached to its ends to its end when the gas was turned on and a match applied the whole firebox of brick would quickly become hot over this the cooking was done the fumes being carried off by means of the usual stovepipe in their fireplace an iron rack supported by iron fire dogs held a lot of brick and stone the gas pipe led up through the hearth to furnish the heating energy and there was a good vent above. This seemed, in my judgment, a much safer way to use this volatile element than the other method which had so menaced our lives. Next heading, a Canadian holiday. I had promised to return to Toronto to eat Christmas dinner at Brother Seaton's. It was a merry gathering, indeed, in addition to the members of the family at home, a married daughter and her family arrived to join in the festival, and to me, a happy feature, sisters Ada and Mabel Clark were invited guests. The final week of the year was spent in visiting with these and other good friends, in writing and preaching twice on the Sabbath, and in performing the usual ministry attending a missionary's labours. It has... It had been a trying year for me in many ways, but it closed with what I felt were bright prospects for a happy companionship, and I was duly thankful. On the first day of January 1898, in company with Sister Ada Clark and Sister Thomas Seaton, I went to Waldemar to become, at his invitation, the guest of Brother Alexander Clark during the interim before the day set for my marriage to his daughter. I busied myself with correspondence and short trips to various places where I preached or visited among the church membership. Morning and evening of Sunday the 2nd, I spoke at Waldemar and Monday and Tuesday evenings in a hall in Grand Valley, which was well crowded at both services. One evening was spent at prayer meeting and another at a social gathering at Brother John Newberry's. Among the people met at this time were Isaac and John Taylor and Reverend John Fletcher of the Episcopal Church. The next Saturday, Brother Clark and I drove to Masonville where we stayed overnight with a family named Hannah. The next day, I spoke twice in the church, attended prayer services in the afternoon, spent the night with the family of brother and sister John Wilson, and returned to Waldemar on Monday. Their brother, R.C. Evans, spoke at night, and I again on Tuesday evening, which brings us to the wedding day. Next heading, Wedding Bells. 
All had been bustle and preparation, and at one thirty o'clock on Wednesday, January the 12th, in the presence of her family and a few intimate friends, Ada Rachel Clark was united to me in marriage, her father, brother Alexander Clark, giving the bride away. Elder Richard Charles Evans performing the ceremony, brother Archibald MacLean of Toronto acting as groomsman, and Alice Clark acting, sorry, Alice Clark, sister of the bride, attending as maid of honour. The feast that followed the rites occupied several hours, and along in the late afternoon, James Clark, Ada's brother, loaded a number of us into a great sleigh, and away we started for the railway road station. On the way thither, an amusing accident occurred. At a very siding place in the road, the seat upon which the driver and I were seated slipped over the rounded edge of the wagon box, and with my feet well wrapped up in a buffalo robe, I could not prevent being spilled out in the snow. Into it I went sprawling which incident, because I was uninjured, created much merriment for our gay little party. In the gloaming, we reached Clarksdale, the station nearest to St Andrew's Hall in the city, from which point, disembarking, we proceeded to the hall to make ourselves known to the saints assembled there in midweek prayer service and to receive their many felicitations. The next day we started for home, stopping off at Chicago, a day where we had breakfast with Brother Elmer and Sister Grace Johnson and received many callers arriving throughout the day with congratulations and good wishes. Among these I recall Brother John H. Lake, Brother John S. Patterson and Sister William H. Curvin and Daughter Callie and daughter-in-law Mrs. Stanley Cohen. The latter were old-time friends of Plano days. That evening, quite a little company of saints assembled to greet us. In, in response to invitations from the Johnsons, and the time was pleasantly occupied until the hour for our train westward, we reached Lamoni and home on Saturday afternoon to find a hearty welcome at Liberty Hall, as I have already related. The next morning, in addressing the Lamoni saints from their pulpit, with what grace I could muster, I introduced Sister Joseph Smith, thus ending certain speculations and conjectures about my affairs, which had been more or less prevalent among them. I felt content to leave the wisdom of my choice to the criterion of future associations, and I'm glad to recall that my wife quickly found a warm place in the regards of her new friends. The saints expressed their interest and goodwill by coming en masse to our home the following Tuesday evening when more informal greetings could be exchanged. I'm going to leave that there and carry on in the next episode. Thank you for listening.